your voice now and help us to learn from them too. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, kids. Thank you. Oh, this is good. This is good. The Lord is faithful. Amen. Mm. Wow. So good to be with you all. It's so good to welcome those of you who are doing something we are not used to doing at Blacknell. That is worshiping uh, remotely uh, by live stream. But I just want to take a word, a moment, and say thanks to many, many folks who have worked really hard to get us to adapt and adjust, especially those of us who are a little bit older who uh, take a little bit longer to learn new things. Uh, but it's, it's so good to enjoy adding this opportunity to the ongoing ways that we've found to try to gather together as a community of faith and uh, to be together in this way as well for those of us who are able to be here this morning. And we look forward to having uh, good news to come as uh, we continue to to witness uh, recovery from the pandemic. It's good to welcome those of you who are visitors and those of you who still feel like newcomers. Maybe, maybe uh, you felt like you were on pause, like you were just getting to know us and then all of a sudden we stopped meeting. But uh, life, life has gone on and we, we hope you've been able to follow us easily enough in the communications that uh, Mayor Grimm and others have been so, so wonderful in adapting and adjusting. So. It's a, it's a joy to greet you in the name and the spirit of the Lord. Turn with me to Mark chapter 2. I think I'm supposed to say something about registering with the friendship pads. Is that right, James? Great. That's what I was supposed to say. Good. Okay. Mark chapter 2. Just four verses, 18 to 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John, this is John the Baptist, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but your followers are not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I hope that most of you remember the great story 
of Jean Valjean, the protagonist in Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, or as most Americans are used to calling it now, simply Les Mis. Valjean was a criminal, uh, true, but he was also harshly judged and imprisoned unjustly, who later made his escape. And while on the run, he was taken in by a priest who welcomed him into his home and treated him as a guest. He put clean clothes on him. He gave him fresh linen in which to sleep. He fed him. But in the night, Valjean did what he was accustomed to doing, fending for himself, seeing an opportunity. He got up, stole the valuable candlesticks that belonged to the priest, and headed into the night. Later on, they caught up with him, the police, and arrested him. And they noticed the candlesticks, and they recognized that they belonged to the priest. And so they took Valjean back to the priest along with the candlesticks. And the police asked if the candlesticks were the property of the priest. And the priest said, they were, but I gave them to this man. And later, in a quiet moment, Valjean was told by the priest, with these candlesticks, I have purchased your soul. Grace, in that moment, broke through. And Valjean, having never known anything like grace in his life, was transformed by it. My story is similar, sort of. I wasn't a thief, not to be arrested anyway, not imprisoned, but someone purchased my soul. And it was an act of grace that took me by surprise and contributed to my own conversion. As it turns out, my soul was worth about $1.20, which was the price of a triple-decker cheeseburger at Staley's Diner in 1973 in Winston-Salem. It was bought for me by some Christian strangers who had invited me to join them for a midnight snack after I stumbled into their worship gathering at my university. And I was taken aback by how their generosity, although a buck 20 might not feel like candlesticks, they were candlesticks to me. It was the mark of a gracious Christian community that helped me understand who Jesus was better. In this passage in Mark, the Pharisees and other Jews are trying to make sense of this young Christian community that is gathering around Jesus. It's a strange community. And as we saw last week, remember, we were at the table of Levi, the tax collector, Matthew of all places, and Jesus was being criticized there for being too gracious by the folks who were best known in the culture for taking God most seriously. Now, Jesus and his followers were not only being criticized in our text for eating with the wrong people, now they're also being accused of eating on the wrong days. And the critics were coming at Jesus from all sides. On the one hand, perhaps a little surprisingly, the disciples of John the Baptist were called as witnesses in the case against Jesus. The inference is that even though those disciples might have been thought of to be more friendly to Jesus' cause, 
They nevertheless followed the standard traditions of Judaism as they knew it, typically fasting on Monday and Thursday from dawn until dusk. But on the other side, so did the Pharisees criticize Jesus. Not surprising here, for the Pharisees were the keepers of the flame of Israel. They had emerged from a Jewish revolt almost 200 years earlier as those who were most zealous for the reputation of God and for the laws of Judaism. They were not priests. They were Bible study fellowship types, people who took the scriptures very seriously. And they were very suspicious of anything that smelled like accommodation to Roman or Greek culture. You'll probably know that it was the Pharisees who Jesus both sought out and yet who opposed Jesus most fiercely. If we could generalize Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees, we might say that he, like them, loved the scriptures, commended them to his followers as being absolutely trustworthy and authoritative. But he was also sensitive in a way that the Pharisees were not and accused them of being so zealous for following the law and its tradition that they lost sight of the intent of the law. So both John the Baptist's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees were taken aback by Jesus' apparent dismissal of the law and the way that it had come to be practiced in first century Judaism. In this, this case, the tradition that had grown up around the question of fasting. You know what fasting is. Fasting is the voluntary abstaining from eating for a set period of time. It was one of the three pillars of Judaism along with prayer and the giving of financial aid to the needy. Fasting then was one of the markers of serious followers of Judaism. If you wanted to be known as a faithful Jew, you paid attention to those three things. But who was this Jesus then who could not only heal the sick and teach with authority unlike anyone else they had ever heard, who would even claim to forgive sin, but who flaunted the basic commitments of the faith, something that he would also do in the next paragraph around the question of Sabbath keeping. He had captured minds and imaginations. And yet he had also provoked those who were the most esteemed among serious, faithful believers. Well, Jesus responds with a small parable. It's the first parable in the Gospel of Mark. And he asks a question. How can the, how can the, ghost, the ghosts, the guests of the bridegroom, fast while he is with them? They can't, but a time is coming when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and that's the time to fast, but not now. A Jewish wedding is a week-long affair. I don't know how they did it. I, the weddings that I go to, I'm exhausted after four hours, but it's a week-long affair, and guests would come, and they would have nothing to do but to celebrate. Seven days of food and wine and song and dance. Even the rabbis were encouraged to take the week off and come join the fun. Betsy has always encouraged me to smile 
when pictures are being taken. She'll whisper to me or not whisper. Don't forget to smile, Alan. But if you were to see the family photo of my son Sam and his lovely wife Caitlin's wedding, you would know that I needed no prompting on that day by Betsy or anyone else to smile. It was my son's wedding to a girl that we were absolutely in love with. It was time to celebrate, and the joy was palpable. The smile was easy. I knew instinctively there's no fasting at weddings. Now, Jesus is not questioning the value of fasting, but he is suggesting that something is going on here that makes fasting the wrong thing to be worrying about. Jesus is saying, suppose there is a wedding, would you fast? The answer would be, well, no, of course not. It's a silly question. But as is the case with every parable that Jesus would tell, the audience would have to ponder the story just a bit before it might dawn on them. What was Jesus saying? Was he actually saying that he is the bridegroom? What does he mean? And if he's the bridegroom, who's the bride? Suffused in the, in the meaning of Jesus' parable, you can hear the words of the prophet Isaiah. For your creator is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were his wife. With everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you. Do you hear it? Listen. Jesus is actually claiming for himself, just as he did when he healed the paralytic, that he is God. He's not just a messenger. He's not just a prophet. He is making an outrageous claim that he is God. And what's his mission? His mission he likens to a marriage, a wedding, feast, where there is no fasting. The bridegroom has emerged from his heavenly tent, and he's arrived at the wedding of his bride. And his bride, it's not just the usual suspect, it's Israel, but not an Israel known by its usual markers. It's a strange community. Look around. It's a strange community where people wear masks to worship God. It's a strange community where people who would not in any other way be drawn together somehow find themselves in the same room at the same time on a regular weekly basis. It's a strange community that is marked by grace, extended to sinners, comprised of any and all who would respond to, with joyful acceptance to the loving invitation of the bridegroom. Something strange, something big, something new is happening here, even in this simple little parable. A couple of months ago, Don Hoover asked me, uh, put me on to a, a YouTube series about uh, encounters with Jesus. It's called The Chosen. I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's a, I think, very moving attempt to suggest the backstory in a very faithful way to the characters that we meet in the Gospels. I've found it compelling. If I had 
if I've learned anything over the years, it's to be very, very careful before I recommend movies or television shows to anybody. Learn that the hard way. But I'm going to go out on a short limb here, and I'm going to recommend this to you, young and old alike. I think it's very compelling for many ages. So we see Peter, for example, full of confidence and bravado, but flawed in his own way, wrestling with the unexpected failure of his confident schemes. And we meet Levi, Matthew, in the very moment that we looked at last week in the Gospel of Mark, the, this tax collector, a Jew despised by other Jews as a toady of the Romans, a traitor. And when Jesus calls Matthew, Peter protests. And he says, Jesus, what are you doing? You're not supposed to invite Matthew. This is very different from what I was expecting. The Jesus character is one, I mean, Jesus characters are weird in some of these movies, but the Jesus character in this is wonderfully conceived, and he looks at Peter, and with a wry look says, Peter, get used to different. Get used to different. You see, that's what's happening in Jesus. We're still very early in the Gospel of Mark, but it's everywhere already. Something big is happening. Something is being birthed that is both new and yet old, like a forgotten promise made fresh in the memory after the years had passed. But it is so new, you can't just add a little Jesus to your settled life any more than you could sew a new patch of cloth onto an old pair of jeans. You can, but it's not going to hold. How many patches did my mom sew onto my old jeans until she finally gave up? And my mother did not give up. You can't pour new wine into old leather that was used for old wine. The leather will burst. Then a momentary darkness falls across Jesus' countenance as he says, there will come a time when the bridegroom will be taken from you. But it's not now. But you see, even then, early on in in Jesus' mission, the cross is casting its backward shadow over his awareness and his teaching. Remember that Mark's gospel is is not being read by people at a wedding, not by a long shot. Mark's gospel is being read by Roman Christians who were facing harsh persecution. And this glance at the cross would have been a comfort to them. They knew about fasting. And we actually should know way more about it than we do. About how it serves as an aid to memory. How it serves as a spur to contrition. How it serves to strengthen us to persevere in the face of the challenges that all of us face as we seek to be faithful to the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. But then Jesus returns to his theme, and he looks around at his guests, such a strange collection of dinner companions, and he urges them and us to be themselves the vessels of new life, the recipients of new life, Jesus is saying that he is the new garment and to put it on. He is the new wine. To drink it up, we'll make more if we run out. 
Jesus has already shown us that he can do that. He's not a religious patch that you put on the old familiar clothes of your life. He's not a different version of the same old cheap wine. What did you drink in college? Matus, Annie Greensprings, what was it? $3 a bottle? It's not just a different version of that same cheap wine. The categories don't work anymore. That's what he's trying to say. All things are being made new. Neither pagan myth nor Jewish tradition can contain him. You see, what Jesus is offering is not just a new way of thinking, although you will find your understanding turned upside down. Jesus is offering not just a new moral code of ethics, a new law, although you will find that never before in your life have your choices and actions had so much import. No, none of that is sufficient to contain what is on offer in the newness of Jesus Christ. He, here is an invitation into a life renewed and restored where, even every, where every category of human existence feels familiar but is infused with a new purpose and a new hope and even a new joy. And you are invited in. What happens at a wedding? At a wedding, a new entity comes into the world. A family is birthed as husband joins wife. Something that didn't exist before is brought into being. Do you hear the invitation in this parable of Jesus to join the wedding party, to put on your best new clothes, and to become part of a new family? to be part of this strange collection of folks that would never, ever otherwise exist, save for the gracious invitation of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as familiar as so many of us are with who you are and what you are about, we pray that in this strange moment when we are regathering in this way that feels odd to those of us who have been used to another way, that the newness of your offer of the gospel would strike us afresh, that we would hear your invitation to come deeper in, to move higher up, to get to know you, to invite you, to have your way with us in new ways, that you would birth in us a new love for you and a new hope in what you could do, what you are doing in the world. As we prepare to come to your table, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would sweep through us and prepare us to be receptacles of your new life brokered to us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.